The following is a message from Pastor Ellis Orozco of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Oh, good morning. Good to see all of you. The scripture passage this morning that we're going to be looking at comes from, not from the well. We're taking a little bit of a break from the well. We want you to continue to reading the well, but we're not going to be preaching from the well during this, this sermon series. We're going along the liturgical calendar uh, readings that are preparing us for Lent. This is the Lenten season. Last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. We begin this journey. And so we want to we want to build a roadmap, a journey to Easter uh, going along with the liturgical calendar. Now, the cool thing about that is that in the, with the liturgical calendar, the scripture passages are chosen by eminent biblical scholars, chosen specifically to lead us to Easter, to prepare our hearts for that wonderful event that we call we call Easter. So these passages have been chosen by biblical scholars for that purpose. So that's pretty cool. The second cool thing about, about that is that millions of Christians all over the world who follow the liturgical calendar are, are studying and reading and, and contemplating the exact same scriptures that we are uh, today, this very day. And so we're going to start with that journey. Stop, starting point number one on the roadmap comes from Deuteronomy chapter 26. And I'll be reading verses 1 to 10. Deuteronomy chapter 26 verses 1 to 10. By the way, another kind of benefit of the liturgical calendar is that, is that the scripture passages are chosen by these scholars and your pastor has to preach on them. And uh, not necessarily a passage he would ever choose to preach from, but it forces him, right, to preach those scripture passages because they're very important. This one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 to 10, and this is what the word of God says. By the way, this, this whole passage can be divided into three sections. The first is uh, an instruction. The second is a confession. And the third is a call to action. Instruction, confession, and then call to action. You'll see it as we go through the scripture passage. Beginning with verse 1, this is the instruction. Verses one, first few verses. He says, When you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, Take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. And that's, that's the instruction. They've been just given him the instruction. Now comes the confession. And say to the priest in the office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God. My father was a wandering Aramean and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice And saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits, I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. That's the confession. And then the call to action, the last verse. Place the basket before the Lord your God. Bow down before him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. 
A couple of important concepts kind of flow out of this passage that I wanted to begin with. He keeps repeating this idea of the Lord promising and giving a land, right? So there's the Lord and he has given them this land, this promised land. And he goes into a considerable amount of detail in the confession about how that happened, how God gave them this land. Now, the interesting thing is that he hasn't given it to them yet. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is from the wilderness wandering years. The, the narrator of Deuteronomy is still living in the wilderness wandering years outside of the promised land. He hasn't given it to them yet. And so what he is saying in essence in this passage, he's, he's telling them when God gives us this land, when he gives us this land, this is how you're going to behave. When, when you get the land, this is how you're going to, this is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to act. This is how you're going to behave. Now you might ask, well, why does he need to do that? Well, every good parent in the room understands exactly why he needs to do that, right? We were going to Disney World, Disneyland. Which one's in Orlando? Disney World. We're going to Disney World, right? We're going to Disney World uh, one year. The kids were little. And so we sat them down. They knew we were going to Disney World. And we set them down and said, look, when we get there, this is how you're going to behave, right? This is what you're going to do. This is what you're not going to do. More importantly, this is what you're not going to do. This is how you're going to behave. Any good parent understands this. And for us as a family, we were well practiced at this because this was the speech of every Sunday morning, right? Okay, kids, we're going to church. Don't forget your dad's the pastor. We're going to church. This is how you're going to behave. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're not going to do. This is how you're going to behave. And yes, did it work? Almost never. But you still, you, ha- you make the effort, right? You make the effort. And this is what he's doing with the people of Israel. He's saying, when we get there, this is how you're going to behave. Now, there are two amazing truths about that. One truth about God and one truth about human beings. The first truth is the truth about God. And it is the, it is the sovereignty of God, the the, the God who always delivers on his promises, it's the certainty you hear in the voice of the narrator as he says to them, when do we get to the promised land? And we will get to the promised land. It's been promised. In fact, he calls it an inheritance. He says it again and then again and again in this brief passage. He says it multiple times. The land the Lord your God has given to you. And he says he has given it to you as an inheritance. Well, an inheritance is something that you get from your father or your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather, something that they owned, right? Something that they owned and they have passed it on to you because it was theirs. They owned it. And this inheritance that he's speaking of is the promise that was given to Abraham. Their, in this case, for this generation, their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham. The problem is Abraham never owned the land. He never owned any of it. He, he, oh, he, he bought one cave. Okay, he bought a cave to bury his wife. That's the only piece of the promised land that he actually legally owned. He didn't own it. And yet, he's saying this is an inheritance. What is it that they have inherited? It's the promise they have inherited. And the idea is the promise from God is as good as the deed to the land. It's as good as gold, you understand, because it comes from God. That's the first amazing truth we see here, that God is true to his word. He is true to his promise and you can count on it. You can bank on it. The second interesting thing that they say is about human beings 
And, and he's saying basically, and I know that when God does it, when he does what he says he was going to do and he gives you this land, I know that it will not take long after you have settled into it before you're going to forget. It's a human being thing. You're going to forget. And slowly but surely, imperceptibly, over time, you're going to start to think that you did it. And you're going to think and start to act like it's your land, like you own it, you see. That's what's going to happen to you. It says something about what it looks like to be human, right? We are forgetful creatures. And he says, so, because I know you and because I know what's going to happen, this is what you're going to do. He says, you're going to take the very first part of the produce the, first, the very first part of whatever you produce from the land, which, by the way, did I mention God gave to you? You're going to take the first part of that, the very first part, and you're going to take it to this sacred place that I'm going to show you. Remember, none of this has happened yet. He says, you're going to take it to this sacred place, and there's going to be a priest there. He's, this hasn't happened. Jerusalem is not, Jerusalem is not even, a, it's a little tiny tiny village at this point, barely a village. They only have one stoplight. They don't even have a Dairy Queen or a Walmart. That's Jerusalem at this time. It's not there yet, but he's saying it's going to be there and you're going to take the very first part and hand it to the priest. This is important. And when he takes it from you, he says, this is what you're going to say. And it's the confession. He says, and I want you to say it out loud. And I want you to say it consistently. This is what you're going to do. The very first part, every time you get something, the very first part, you're going to take it to the priest and you're going to say this confession. And the confession is basically this, that I understand that everything I have comes from God, that it all belongs to him. And I understand that were were it not for God, I would still be back in Egypt baking bricks. See, they had to confess this every single time. Everything I have comes from God. And were it not for God, I would still be back in Egypt baking bricks, you understand. So do not underestimate the power of this. This is a powerful, powerful moment. And here is the inescapable conclusion of this moment that God is setting up for them. That God is saying, I want you to experience this. With the first part of everything you do, the first part comes here, and this is a powerful moment. Do not underestimate the power of, of that act of doing that. And here's, here's the inescapable truth of the power of that act, and it is simply this, that everything I have, everything I think I own, it all belongs to God. It's all of his. And he says, what I want you to do is I want you to take the very first part of it, and I want you to return it to God. It's already his, but you're returning it to him. James chapter one is instructive at this point. James says this in James chapter one, verse 17. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He is the only one who can truly give us good, good gifts. I want you to see that there's this thing happening here in the Exodus story that really lines up with our own experience with, with God and with forgetfulness and with sin and with destruction. 
there's this parallel that happens. It happens in the life of Israel. It happens in, in our lives. It happens in Exodus. It happens with Jesus on the cross. And it is this, that, that the people went to Egypt to find food. There was a famine and the wandering Aramean, that was Abraham and his family. And they went to Egypt for food. And they got to Egypt and they saw that Egypt was great. It was nice. Ancient Egypt was called the breadbasket of the world because they had the Nile. They, famines did not impact them because they always had the Nile. They always had the Nile. So they always had food. This is nice. And so they stay in Egypt. They get comfortable in Egypt. And eventually, they become entrenched in Egypt. And slowly, slowly, almost imperceptibly, they become just like Egypt. They become slaves to Egypt. And becoming slaves to Egypt, they become a fixture on the Egyptian landscape. They become, you live in a place for 400 years, they become just like Egypt. Paulo Friday in his classic work talks about the role between the oppressor and the oppressed and how over a certain period of time, what happens to those who are being oppressed by some oppressor is that the oppressor gets inside of them. Gets inside of them. And they eventually become just like the oppressor in the way they think, in the way they speak, the language they use. And this is what happened. And it was slowly, I want you to see slowly, we become, here's what happens. We become slaves to our culture. We become slaves to where we live. And, and God is pushed out by the culture. Again, James is constructive here. Instructive. James chapter 1. Back to James chapter 1. He says this in verses 13 to 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown gives birth to death. There is this process, and he uses, he uses this, this birthing process, and it's a natural process. The birthing process is a natural process. A woman gets pregnant, and if the pregnancy goes, is healthy and all that, then nine months later, more or less, the baby is coming. The baby is, there's nothing you can do about it. The baby is coming. It's a natural process, and what he's saying is that this sin process, it's a natural process, that once you get entrenched in the culture, once you're in, it begins slowly, imperceptibly, to drag you away, to drag you away from God, so that it becomes, so that it can become your God. The gods of Egypt became the gods of the Israelites. They were dragged away. And he says, this is the way that it happens, right? This is how it happens. They didn't mean to stay in Egypt. It's just that Egypt became comfortable. And once it became comfortable, it was too late. They were trapped. Do you ever feel that way? Where we are trapped. This is what happens to us. This is why it's so hard for us. The first product, the first produce to bring it to God, it is a powerful moment when you do that, and it's mostly lost to us because we are trapped. The culture has become us, and we have become it. It's not that there's anything necessarily wrong with the culture. There are parts of it that are bad, 
parts of the culture that you could even call evil, other parts that are good. It's not that. It's that when Egypt becomes more important than God, when Egypt becomes such a part of you that you forget God, it's the forgetfulness that we forget God. So here he has prescribed this way to not let that happen. And it is this powerful act of taking the first part, which means the best part of yourself, the very best part of yourself is that first part of yourself. And he says, and you give that to God. That's how you get untrapped. Do you ever see the, um, the Matrix movies? A couple years ago, they'd celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Matrix movies. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. But um, Keanu Reeves was the star actor, the, the protagonist in the movie series, The Matrix. It was a movie about, about a group of people who lived in this kind of virtual world. It, it, it wasn't a real world that they were leaving it, living in. That's The Matrix. But they didn't know it the ones living in this world, they didn't know that it wasn't the real world until one of them, Keanu Reeves, starts to become aware, right? And is trying to break out of this, this virtual world. It wasn't real. And he was trying to get into the real world. And so it's 20 years after the movie, right? And, and the movie was a big hit and it's very famous. Um, so 20 years after the movie, they're interviewing Keanu Reeves and he's talking about being at his friend's house and they're talking about the Matrix movie, he and his friend, and uh, the friend's daughter, who's probably, I don't know, 17, 18 years old, she's never seen the movie, right? She wasn't even born when the movie came out. She's never seen the movie. And so Keanu Reeves, the actor who played the key role in this movie, right? He's explaining to her the movie about being in, a, in, in this world. It's not a real world. And he says, and he describes the world, and it's a, this amazing world, but it's not real. But it's an amazing world. And she, her response, this young, right, was it millennial or whatever comes after millennial, Right? Her response is, oh, that would be so cool to live in that world. And he's like, no, you don't understand. It's not real. And she says, so what? Who cares? It sounds cool. I'd love to live in that world. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not real. And her response is like, so what? There's this thing that happens to culture. Imperceptibly. Slowly. We don't even realize that it's happening. That we would rather live in this unreal world than to live in the real world. And what God is describing here is the real world. This is what it looks like. You bring the first part, the very first part, and you bring it to God. So who then, who then is as the church, as the church, we're the church that is trying to bring this gospel, this good news of this very real world that you can live in. We're trying to bring this to people who are suffering, who are hurting, who are in pain, whose lives have been destroyed by this fake world, by this culture, by this culture engulfed world, right? So who is our competition in that? Who's, who, what, what is stopping us? What's hurting us? And what I want to say is that for years... The churches, many churches felt that the competition was the church down the street competing for people, right? And that, that is an absolute lie from the devil. Our competition is not the church down the street. Our competition is not First United Methodist Church. That's a wonderful church with a wonderful pastor. He's a friend of mine. Our competition is not the Heights Baptist Church down the other street. It's a wonderful church with a wonderful pastor. He also is a friend of mine. 
We're not competing against each other. Our competition, Paul says, is in the spirit world against spiritual forces, which means our competition is in the heart of every single human being that we meet who doesn't have Jesus. That our competition is is that thing that is dragging them away and enslaving them in Egypt. It's whatever it is about this culture that comes in and begins to live inside of you. And when it lives inside of you, it begins to push and push the Holy Spirit out. There is what we are fighting against. Amen? This is what we are fighting against. This is our, our great evil competitor. It's, it's the one that takes people and drags them down into a very real kind of hell here on earth. Now talk about the one after you die. People are living it already here on this earth and it is that that force that drags them down into the pit. That force. This This is what he is telling us. This is so important. He's giving us a way out of the pit a way out of the trap. And I'm going to tell you just a minute what, what that is. But first I want you to hear the story about a young man named Zion. And Zion is a young man who's uh, born into very unfortunate circumstances. His mother was a drug addict and she was on very, very hard drugs throughout her entire pregnancy. And because of that, um, Zion was born without legs no legs. And because he was born with no legs, his mother had no capacity. She left. And so he was placed immediately into the foster care program. And listen to his, his story. Listen to Zion's story. This is Zion Clark, famously known as the wrestler born without legs. How are you going to wrestle without legs? He had no stability in his life. He had no family. I'm not going to lie, I wasn't a good kid. He just didn't have anybody. How did all that stuff in your childhood like affect who you are now? She was doing heavy drugs while she was pregnant with me. It was just a straight war zone. I got starved and beaten a lot. It's just a horrific case of abuse that's been kept hidden for years. I'd do anything I possibly could do just to see how much I could get away with. There'd be times I'd be locked in a room, maybe two, three days. Once a day, get a piece of bread and half a glass of water that went on for a while that's why I used to be I used to be tiny just like pretty much skin and bones I would go to school and I would cry as a kid I would be terrified to go I was a bad kid once I got to like middle school so now I'm like 12 13 14 I would get in trouble at that point honestly I didn't care either you know, I was at the point where I was like, whatever happens, happens. I really don't care. I don't see a future for myself. I don't see myself even getting a normal job. I was 16 when she took me in. He came into my life when the caseworkers had reached out to me and said that they needed a placement for a young fellow. At first, he was just so angry. When I was living there, I got into some trouble with the police. And I'm thinking, like, all right, well, I'm going to just pack my bags, get ready to go. Sitting in the back of the cop car in my driveway, you know, in handcuffs, and I'm just, I'm just sitting there like, man, this is it. 
they talked outside the car for about 15 minutes. I couldn't hear a word. We took the handcuffs off, and I went inside, and she sat me down. And instead of screaming and yelling at me, like, she just spoke to me calmly, and, like, I could feel, like, the love in her voice, even though she was upset. She said, you got to be someone better than what you are right now. Next time you get arrested, there's a good chance they won't bring you back to the house. And I didn't want to do that. It kind of opened my eyes for a second. I really had to do some soul searching. I'm starting to think, like, man, I, I want to see what happens if I really, like, try hard and try to, like, be a better version of myself. She really, like, showed me how to be a man. The biggest lesson I've had to learn is that things will not always go your way, but you have to work with what you got. I still remember my very first practice I ever went to. My mom would be like, what are you doing today? I was like, oh, I'm going to go wrestle with Coach Donahue. I walked in. I didn't know what anybody was doing. Coach Donahue's right in there. He got real excited. He waved. I just remember I worked with him for like an hour and a half after the practice was over, and I went back every day. Didn't win nothing. Didn't win a single match my freshman year. Didn't win a single match my sophomore year. It's not that I loved it. I felt a sense of urgency to really focus on it because I wanted to be better. I didn't want to have another year like the last three years. And I didn't know how I was going to do at the start of the season. I had no idea. I was nervous. And I was finally starting to learn what I could do with my body to enable myself to beat these guys. Senior year came around and she was at that first match. I won 15 to zero just because my mom was there. Practice was Monday through Friday. I would be training Monday through Sunday. No days off. I put in all the extra work that I could. I come out the gate, first nine matches of my senior year, I just didn't lose. Our next guest is going to blow you away. He's the Maslin native who became a top wrestler despite being born without legs. Today he's a world-class wrestler and track star. I was in class one day, and the athletic director knocked on the door and was like, I need to see Zion right now. And so I'm like, oh, man, what did I do this time? And he closes the door of his office and he sits down. He said, there's a school up in Cuyahoga Falls, only about 100 kids in this little elementary school, and they were Syrian refugees. He said that the school showed him my documentary, and they all drew me pictures, wrote me letters. From their letters, I, I saw a lot of myself in them, because now they're in foster homes. I told him, I said, is there anything I can do for these kids? Within a couple days... They didn't tell the kids, they just had them in the gym, and I came in, and their eyes lit up. I spoke to them, and I was able to resonate with them on just a different level. After I got done, this one girl made me a shirt that said, Be a Zion. My mom, she opened my eyes to that there is a better world for me out here than what I've been dealt so far. People are going to throw things, throw curveballs at you. People are going to be cruel and mean. When you have to put in real work and you have to go through real struggle, you have to go through real suffering, real loss, real sacrifice, that's what it is to be human. That's what it is. That's what it is to be human. It's to deal with very real suffering, struggles loss and I show you that story of Zion when I read his story and I saw his story it's his documentary by the way is one of the most popular documentaries right now 
when I saw that, I saw this is, this is what it looks like. When you're trapped, you're trapped. And then suddenly, you're set free. And this is what God does for you. This is the story of Deuteronomy. This is the story he's telling of a people who were trapped. They were trapped for 400 years in Egypt and 40 more wandering in the wilderness. They were trapped. But God is going to set them free. And when that happens, it's happened to you, it's happened to me. I want you to see how that story tracks with our sin story, that we were trapped in our sin and God is the one who set us free. And, and, and when you experience that story, this is, how, this is how you never get trapped again. And I just want to give to you, it's simple but not easy. It's simple but not easy. The first is, is ritual, a daily confession. It's the confession that he gave us. That everything I have is a gift from God. And were it not for God, I would still be back in Egypt baking bricks. You, you put it, whatever, whatever your back in Egypt baking bricks is, you fill in the blank. This is your confession every single day. The second is an intentional connection to God. He tells them to go to the holy place, the sacred place. This is their connection to God. It is an intentional connection to God. And the last is the call to action. Giving God our first and our best. He says you lay that first, first part of your produce there at the altar. And then you bow down and you worship God. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. I want us to, to make the confession today. I came across an ancient prayer. Or an old prayer. Maybe not ancient. Um, this is John Wesley. John Wesley's pretty ancient. Um, a famous prayer by John Wesley. Uh, it's called the Covenant Prayer. Um, if you come from a Methodist background, you've probably heard this one before. But let me, let me read it to you. I'm going to read it to you once, and then I want us to stand and read it together as a confession. This is the prayer. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me, let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praise for you or criticized for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O oh wonderful and holy God, Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. Let's stand together and let's conclude our time together by reading the covenant prayer by John Wesley. You read, you read out loud, you speak it out loud with me. And here it goes. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things 
to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we love you and we honor you today. Help us to always, Father, to always pray pray this prayer, to always confess this confession that everything we have belongs to you. And help us to be faithful, faithful in bringing the first part of ourselves, the first part of our time, the first part of our talents, the first part of our treasures, always to you so that we will never, ever forget that it is you who gave it to us. It is you who sustains us, and it is you who saves us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.